Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zubkis. This week, we've got a double dose of our Primary Review interviews for you. First, Elliot Gantz, Head of Advocacy at the Loan Syndications and Trading Association, joined Deputy Manager Editor Reorg Kevin Eckhart to discuss the private funds industry's recent petition to the Fifth Circuit to invalidate the SEC's recently adopted regulations requiring private fund advisors to provide additional disclosures to investors and avoid certain business practices. Elliot and Kevin also discussed the Second Circuit's recent opinion affirming a May 2020 district court decision holding that notes issued under a $1.8 billion syndicated leveraged loan to Millennium Health do not qualify as securities and dismissed the liquidating trustee Mark Kirshner's state law securities claims. Switching gears, Rierick's Patrick Fitzgerald speaks with Belinda Schwartz, executive chair and the head of Herrick Feinstein's real estate department, about current happenings in distressed real estate, including the surprising uptick in single-asset real estate cases and atypical developments in the high-end residential market, the confluence of circumstances that are driving changes in the market, and what lies ahead. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, September 18th. Elliot, welcome to the to the Reorg podcast, and thanks for coming on with us. We're really glad to have you on um, as as. Uh, an indication of how important the LSTA is in this market and, and how important Reorg views the organization. Uh, so on, on Kirshner, basically, I think most people know what the, the, the general outline of the ruling was, which is that syndicated leverage loans are not securities subject to regulation under state or federal securities laws. Um, so let me just ask you, just jump into the substance of it. Why is this ruling so important for the LSTA and its members? Uh, so first, uh, it's great to be back on the uh, the podcast, and um, it's great to have you. Yep. And so let me answer, ask answer that first question. Um, the The decision is important for two reasons. Number one, and primarily, it finally answers the question clearly that syndicated loans, syndicated term loans, are not considered securities. So while the court's decision was about that millennium loan. That millennium loan is like pretty much any other term loan B. Uh, so the scope is much, much broader. So effectively, you have a rule that says those loans, the, the legacy loan, the loans, the 1.4 trillion of term loan Bs that are out there are not subject to securities laws. I can dive deeper into why that's important, but let me get to the second point. One of the really good things about this opinion also is it's a straight legal analysis of the Reeves versus Ernst & Young and Banco Español precedents that govern whether notes are securities. And in addition to ruling that the millennium loan is not a security, it really lays out a roadmap for the market to stay. It's almost a safe harbor. If mm -hmm. you stay within these boundaries that are discussed in the decision, your term loan B should not be considered a security. And it's pretty clear with, you know, possibly one exception, what those boundaries are. Um, so I think that's very, very helpful for the market particip participants going forward um, so that they won't have to deal with this kind of issue 
for the foreseeable future. Well, let's go back to your first point about um, this being a a precedential decision for um, a large swath, if if not the the vast bulk of leveraged loans not being securities. Do you uh, see any? And this kind of goes into the second question as to mm -hmm. as to the roadmap. Do you see any way that this decision might um, five to ten, five, ten, fifteen years down the down the road, like Banco Español, might be revisited? and um and might be uh reconsidered should the market change as opposed to the the second point is really goes to the terms of individual deals and what what the deals do but do you think that there will ever be another revisiting of kirshner in the same way that the that the the court reconsidered and, and reaffirmed um banco espanol I, I think I, I think the way you frame that question is is exactly right I think, and and it does it does go to the first part and the second point that I made. To the extent that the market stays similar to how it is now, I think for the foreseeable future, and that you know that could be decades, the market's pretty safe. Um, litigating in the face of a second Second Circuit decision affirming, um, you know, Banco Español, and essentially. Um, articulating how Reeves will be interpreted in the loan context is kind of a waste of time if the market stays the way it is now. Um, you know, this was a very expensive litigation for for the trustee. Um, and, you know, we had a shot, but it, it, it wasn't successful. To do another litigation like this, if the market is, is more or less the same, would kind of be a waste of time, in my opinion. Now, if the loan market changes dramatically, I think that's different, a different story. Um, and, and, and the factors are, are, you know, I think are, are laid out pretty clearly. One of the uncertainties in the decision is how big can a syndicate get? So the court answered in an interesting way. It said, look, 400 is fine. So, <laughs> and it, and it specifically said, we're not, our, we're not going to discuss what's not fine. But 400 is fine. So does that mean 600 is fine? That that's the one point that might be interesting. Um, but um, I don't think 400 is the the absolute you know limit. I, I think that that's pretty clear. The other thing is if you're not going to sell to individuals, I think that's a very important factor that the court also identified. If this market changes where they're selling to you know, natural persons, I think that would give someone the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to revisit. But short of that, I think I think the market's in a pretty comfortable place. I mean, they use the term, the panel used the term sophisticated institutional entities um, that receive a confidential infra information memorandum to sort of characterize the marketing process and the syndication process. You 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 think that that goes down all the way to individuals and natural persons? What about relatively unsophistication, unsophisticated institutional entities, say uh, community banks or um, you know investment clubs or syndicates that get together, you know, ten individuals and and start to buy these loans? I, I guess what I'm getting at is there's kind of a tension between growing the market and reaching the market out to new investors 
and the limitations of this decision, right? Yeah, and I think I think that has to be informed by the decision, and and um, people are taking chances if they go in that direction. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of investors that are that are, that would be quibs if they were buying if loans were securities, they'd be quibs that um, you know th that make for a robust market. And to the extent you got you start going outside of that, you're you're taking risk. And this isn't black and white, but I think that the court articulated a pretty clear path forward if you're willing to stay within, you know, the four walls of that decision. And do you think most participants in the market market will? I mean, it, you yeah. have to assume somebody's going to be out there innovating and <laughs> trying to either go beyond the numbers, try to more broadly syndicate or maybe eliminate um the restrictions on assignment that the panel said were were um, sort of dispositive on the general public distribution factor. Um, there, there's going to be somebody who tries to go outside this, right? Again, um, they do that at their risk. Um, I, I, I think I think that's that's really the main takeaway moving forward. Like you want to you want to have clarity. It's there, and then it's up to you. And you know, markets change, and 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 uh, you know, I think. I think the market's safe for the foreseeable future until there is movement that takes it out of that realm that we're in now. Do you think that there's um that the the current spate of leveraged loan creditor on creditor violence um counsels that that maybe this is it's a little dangerous to, for loans not to be securities, right? There's there's things that um that lenders majorities are currently doing to minorities that are problematic for the market and i know the lsta has issued guidelines to try to to help people protect themselves from that but um at some point i guess there's a tension between leverage loans becoming a mature um and standardized market which is kind of what the lsta's goal is and leverage loans not becoming securities and having those protections for investors I think the issue goes, you know, even deeper than that. And, and, and I, you know, I'm not as focused on the, the securities versus loan perspective, although it's, it's a very interesting question. And, 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 and you know, it, it needs a lot of thought needs to be put on that. But what concerns me and I think us generally, a lot of people in the market. So if you take a look at the decision, it says, you know, one of the th factors that mitigates the need for securities laws is the fact that it's secured well if it's if the question is like is this you know like what's happening to the security when you've got this lender on lender violence that's not a great fact either so you have to mm -hmm. take that into account um more importantly and it's really outside the the the, the realm of Kirshner, it's concerning to have really bifurcated um recoveries and and you know how do rating agencies rate to that when someone's getting you know ten percent and one and another one's getting eighty, um, those are the kinds of issues that concern us. That it's that you have this very robust market that has these idiosyncratic results that are very hard to rate to and and get your head around and market, frankly. So, um, you know, we're not, you know, we've taken a very strong position. We 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 we. Um, we are not in favor of these of these uh, strategies that result in um, 
such uneven recoveries because I just don't think it's good for the market going forward. And um, I, I guess this is a, a purely hypothetical sort of counterfactual question, but I, I'm interested. What what would you have done if the Second Circuit, UDLSTA, have done if the Second Circuit went the other way and said, these are securities, we are sort of saying this doesn't fit within Banco Español or Banco Español is behind the times because of the size of the market, et cetera. What would the LSTA have, have done other than appealing that to the, or seeking uh, re rehearing on banc and filing a petition for certiorari? What, right. what so, in the reaction, what does the world look like in that worst case scenario? So Yeah. So th this is now I'm getting into like nerd world. But um, hey, this is reorg. We got nerds. <laughs> so I'm going to take one step back and tell you what we would have done if something else had happened. And then I'll get to you uh, because I think it's interesting and important. Um, we were prepared to file an amicus brief had the SEC weighed in with a view that loans were security. So so we have been giving this a lot of thought. So the SEC ended up not engaging and we didn't have to do that, but we were prepared to make a counter argument to, you know, to that point of view, if, if they had come forward with that, um, them not having done that, um, made it very, made it a very clear path forward for the court to, to answer <clears throat> that legal question, whether this millennium loan was secured or not, had they not done that, it would have, it would not have, because of the nature of the case, it would not have been a decision that loans are securities. It would have been decision that loans Mm -hmm. Are not not securities. If if um not and make my right, it would it would have gone back to the district court. It would have gone back to the district for more discovery, so they would not have been making that decision that this is a security. That would have happened on a Fair motion point. for summary Fair judgment. Point. Nevertheless, it's not you know that that's again that's a nerdy theoretical question. In the real world, you would have had an environment where the market says, "Whoa." This isn't good. Um, I know it's technically just a, a, a you know, a uh, reverting back to the district court, but it creates uncertainty. Tremendous uncertainty for years because it summer judgment be, can take a long time. That that litigate that that process would probably have taken at least two years. It would have gone back for more discovery. Now again, nerdy nerdyville. The discovery was weird because there was not much to discover. Mm -hmm. uh, this was really a legal question. And, you know, bizarrely, the litigation trust members were the plaintiffs. And they're all of our members, and they didn't even want this to happen in the first place. Kirshner had access to them all along. He could have been doing his discovery at any time. So, again, kind of inside baseball nerdiness I don't know what they would have discovered, but nevertheless, there would have been a process. It would have taken two years. They would have, you know, they, they would have done the summary judgment, motions for summary judgment. Gardafi would have had a rule. It would have gone back to the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit, you know, the briefing, the whole thing, and a decision. And at that point, whatever they said would be really the, the, the point where you, your question would come into play. What the hell would we do? Now, the, the answer to your question the question you did ask is, had they gone that path, we were prepared to start engaging with the banking agencies and the SEC immediately um, to have conversations with them because there would have been a huge amount of mitigation that they would have had to think about, prepare for. Um, 
you know, one of the thing, one of the conversations we had with the SEC and and the banking agencies is even if you took the view that loans should be subject to the securities laws and you wanted to do that in a, in a normal regular way pr regulatory process, it would have been like the LIBOR uh, transition. It, it, <laughs> it it's something that should have taken five years, not on the basis of a court decision. And boom, you know, you got a problem. And our conversations with the banking agencies and the SEC at that point would have been, okay, if this ends up going the wrong, you know, from our perspective, the wrong way, what are we going to do to make sure the market doesn't blow up on day one? So that was part of the plan. Um, and, and you know, we were ready, we were ready to go on that um, because we had done all of the work thinking about what would have to happen. Like, I'll give you one example before we go, you know, totally crazy here um <laughs> now i want to do that <laughs> it's not clear whether banks can hold non-investment well it is clear that banks cannot hold non-investment grade securities on in in their banks mm -hmm. it has to be in the broker dealer now if a loan is a security can they continue to hold those loans in the bank can they trade them through the mm -hmm. bank as they do today if they can't it's just a complete mess. Um, broker deals are not in a position to trade loans. Um, you know, the, you, you still have loans subject to credit agreements with all the restrictions and 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 you know uh, all of the all of the restrictions and the provisions of the credit agreement that govern settlement. Yet you have to settle within two days if it's a security. There would have been margin issues, FINRA issues, all kinds of issues. Um, the point that we, we, the point is we would have had to start preparing for all of those eventualities, even though they might've been two years down the line. Um, so we, we really avoided a huge disruption of the market. And the other thing that might've happened right away is the market might've frozen up. Um, we were very concerned about that. You know, you're a bank, uh, you, you see this decision, you know, Banks are, are conservative and they, you know, the, the risk people go, okay, well, what do we do now? And they may have, they may have frozen trading for a few days or till they, you know, till they got there comfortable on, on how to proceed. So it could have been a very big mess in the short term and a huge mess if the decision had ultimately come out the wrong way. Do, do you know why the SEC did not weigh in? I don't know why specifically. Um, we, you know, we were invited in into the process. We met with the chairman's office, with the general counsel's office, with all of the commissioners. We had a lot of meetings, and it, it raises it's, it. It actually raises an interesting question. So the court asked, and, and here's I, here's a what. This is a long way of answering your question, but the court asked the SEC a very narrow, specific legal question: Do you think the Millennium Loan is a security or not? under Reeves versus Ernst & Young. Mm -hmm. The answer really was <clears throat> anything they said was a policy decision. So they were faced with a legal question and the ramifications were policy driven. And I think after a couple of conversations about Reeves versus Ernst & Young with the general counsel's office, every other meeting we had with the SEC was based on policy, repercussions, disruption, things like that. I think ultimately the majority of the, the commissioners could not get comfortable 
that this was the right way to go from a policy perspective, not from a legal perspective, that if you wanted to do this, if you think loans are securities, this is not the way to do it. And the risks were too great, the risks of disruption and doing it this way were not worth it. I think that's what ultimately happened. I wasn't in the room, obviously, but that's my my take. I guess the question that follows is, why didn't they file something saying loans are not securities? We don't think they are. You think they're just uh, preserving room for future policymaking or or rulemaking, something like that? So I, I, I don't think they would ever have taken that position for, for a couple of reasons. They, they're in a fight on crypto. Um, they they w- would not want to concede anything on that point in in general, I, but 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 even more to the point, they will never take the view that categorically that a category of assets is not a security. The most we we had hoped and you know what we what we had what we had said to them is if you're going to go down this path of responding to the SEC, what you can say is we don't think. Loan, we we don't think loans are are treated as securities under the current um, regulatory framework, but depending on facts and circumstances, we think loans could be securities. That's what they always say, not just with loans, but with any asset category. That was would have been the most we could have hoped for. Why they didn't go down that path, I think just I, I think I get you know I go back to my legal versus risk issue you know, policy. I mm-hmm. think from a legal perspective, they probably didn't have a consensus to say that. There might have been a majority among the, the commissioners to say, we think it, you know, like from a legal perspective, I'm not going to say that because I don't believe it, but I'm still not willing to go down that path for policy reasons. You know, these are these are my guesses. I, I you know, I, I can't say more than that. Now, I guess let's move on to the, to the private fund rules that were just issued. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess people, again, readers, if they're following reorg and we've written these up generally um, probably know that these relate to kind of favored investor transactions and disclosures and, and fee issues. What's your sort of, of quick summary of, of what these rules include and what the implications of those are for, you know, private funds, which is reorgs um, core constituency. Yeah, so so the, the the rule was was interesting from the LSDA's perspective from the beginning and and, and now. Um, one of the things that we were very focused on, um, or the main thing we were very focused on, was the rules um, attachment to CLOs, which were not private funds but were structured vehicles. Mm-hmm. And that was our. There are many many people advocating for the general private fund rule issues. We did too, but mostly where we put our our emphasis was on that it shouldn't be uh, the rule should not apply to to you know securitization. They, they did cut CLOs out, of and they did. So that was a huge, that was a huge, um, uh, uh, I don't know, a victory for the LCA. It was it was in the market. I mean, it was a it was it was a great result and you know a gratifying result. We we're, were very happy with that. I think it's completely sensible, and you know for the reasons we laid out in our comment letters and in our the meetings that we had with, with the staff. And and to their credit, they 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 understood that and they carved them out. Um, the the problem is that there, there's two fundamental problems, which is you know ultimately why we litigated. Um, one is that 
it, it's sort of the the camel's nose under the tent. <laughs> the, the SEC relies on statutory provisions that we don't think are appropriate to do this rule. Um, sections 206, 211H um, underlie their rulemaking, and and we think that just they don't have that authority, and that it's you know it's a misreading of the statute. Now the reason that it, it, that's important in the context of this rule, which I'll get to in a minute, but it's also very important to the you know to to my camel point. Um, it gives the SEC the ability to continue to regulate private funds in a way in which we don't think they have that authority. And this isn't theoretical. And I think here here's really an important point. If you mm -hmm. look at the outsourcing rule, if you look at the predictive data analytics rule, which just came out, with which I like to call the mystifying predictive data analytics <laughs> rule, um, those are both based on the same authority, 211H. So they're doing that. It's not theoretical. And both those rules are incredibly problematic for private funds um not not really based on any need that we can you know uh, ascertain or that they've articulated and i think that will that will just be the start and that we're going to see more of this and i so i think from this that is perspective sort of uh, don't you know cut nip this in the bud absolutely I, and i think that's a very big driver of litigation um and i and i think you know the, the second part is that although they carved out clos um, and and they 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 tamp down some of the rule at least superficially, with respect to the, you know private funds generally, it's still a mess and it's a very problematic rule. The pre you know the pref preferential treatment parts of it, um, uh, the the pro prohibited activities um, parts of the uh, of the agreement, um, you know these are very sophisticated investors that um, you know you know Calpers doesn't need. The SEC's help, and you know the, those are the kind of yeah. But LPs. I mean, pre presumably, they're not they're not rulemaking for Calpers. You know, they're right. again. This kind of goes back to what I said before that there is a there there is a hierarchy in the leveraged loan market, at least that you know there's there's sophisticated Calpers, Pimco, you know the, the big hedge fund, obviously Elliot, Aurelius, these guys. Um, and then there are sophisticated, um, lowercase participants in the market, right? No, I, look, I, I, I think it's it's a it's a it's a question of do you really think that they need such prescriptive um, uh, provisions that prevent? certain activities from happening that you know you can't do this things that have been ubiquitous through the market that have been negotiated there's a lot of competition in the market among advisors and 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 lps it's not the it's not as if lps don't have choices so look it's it's a view and you know i don't think i i don't so for example for the disclosure you have very very descriptive disclosure provisions no one in the in the, in the private fund community is against disclosure, but they do it. You know, they do it the way they've been doing it, and 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 they do it in ways that are satisfactory to their to their LPs. When you get prescriptions, so you have to do this. You have to do this. You can't have pre preferential treatment. 
that makes things crazy. You know, I'll give you an, an example. I mean, it happens to be a, a CLO example, but I, I think you can, mm -hmm. you could, because you know, yeah. that's what I know, yeah. but you can use it elsewhere. So there are investors in the CLO market, like AAA investors that are well-known who demand a huge amount of information um, because that's their style and they're big investors. They're, 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 you know, primary AAA investors. They might be equity investors and they want what they want. Other investors in those funds don't want them. They don't need it. They don't view it. They don't, they, th their view of, of the information that they need is different. This rule would make you share everything you say orally or in writing with the AAA that wants all that information with everyone. Um, you know, you would have to share your, your, you know, your, yeah, your, but I, I guess my question is if they don't want the, if the, the L, the smaller LPs, the non AAA, and again, I'm, I'm think always thinking of this in terms of the creditor on creditor violence issue, where there is this authority gradient <laughs> in within the loan syndicated syndication participants. If they don't want that information, the, the small LPs, they're perfectly free to ignore it, right? Right, but they, it's not the fund has to provide it, and I, and we're talking about the disclosure issues. That's really where you know I'm sort of he, what is wrong with these rules here, other other than the the camel in the tent issue, which I agree with you on. Um, well, I think I think also things things you know if you're so so with with preferential treatment on repayment or side letters you have a big lead investor um that investor is entitled to negotiate a better deal and you know the sec sure, is, is sticking it right so those are the but kinds it's of just issues disclosure right of those deals to the other lenders no look i i i, I that's not the hill that i'm going to die on um, <laughs> okay. um but i think there's there's so much in this rule that's not that's um that's that's just not appropriate that um again it, it's just it's it's not the kind of rule that we need and again more at the end of the day i think for particularly since loans have been car clo has been carved out i think as much as the as 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 much as this rule itself bothers us it's the precedent of using statutory authority that's really um the main uh, impetus for us moving forward yeah it is it is odd that the sec is trying to regulate participants in the market rather than market. if you look at the if you look at the um outsourcing rule that was a head scratcher like it suggests it it it, it imposes an incredibly burdensome um uh set of rules on managers to hire third-party resources mm -hmm. and I mean, what do they think they, you know, that these advisors like Google, you know, rating agencies or, or they, they do their due diligence, but what they've done now in that, in the outsourcing rules impose really restrictive, very expensive re requirements that really go to the third party advisors, the, the third party providers also, they have to comply with the rule in order to be hired. So they're you know sort of backdoor of um regulating unregulated third party providers the pda rule the predictive data and analytics rule is is completely mystifying 
I, I don't know what, you know, it, it, it requires um, managers, advisors to, to ensure that there's no conflict in their, in their predictive data analytics um, uh, technology that would, that would, you know, conflict with the, in, in their interest with, with clients. So they, they not only don't define conflicts in, of interest in, in a, in the classical way, but the 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 technology they're talking about, we're not talking about AI, like an Excel spreadsheet isn't scope. And it's it's almost impossible to understand what what they how to comply. It's 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 unmanageable. So and and you're seeing a huge amount of pushback. Uh, you know, yesterday the uh a whole bunch of trade associations put in a letter asking them to uh to withdraw the PDA rule because it's unworkable. Yeah, because that that's just to clarify, that's a separate rule. That's a separate rule. But again, subject the the, the the statutory authority is two eleven H, so that's why that's why it's relevant to this conversation. Same thing with the outsourcing rule. So so these are these are reasons why the litigation is so important because um, you know we've already seen two really more or less unworkable, expensive, and unjustified rules that have been that have been uh, promulgated. So do you think that the that the if the SEC can't do it? And, and again, I tend to agree with you there. Where is the regulation for uh, leverage loans and, and the market participants that are active in leverage loans? Is there a place, a hypothetical regulator that could set the rules that need to be made so that we can avoid situations like what you're seeing in crypto? I mean... I, Again, this, this sort of goes back to me for, to the tension between the LSTA's mission, which is sort of regularize, standardize, and mature the leverage loan market, and the idea that all regulation of this area is bad, and we need to, you know, fight anyone setting these rules because the rules are important. That the rules are the difference between the leverage, obviously, over, gross oversimplification, but to the public and and to and to to some extent investors. The rules are what separate the leverage loan market from crypto, where you had preferential treatment afforded. You know, you had Sam Bankman Fried out there allowing some people to withdraw hundreds of millions of dollars right. while the Bahamian entities were standing there over their shoulder. You know, regulation is to some extent good for a market. Right. So so and the I question think is who I, does it? So I'm, I'm, there, there, there are a bunch of people who do it in the bank. You know, in the syndicated market, the bank regulators supervise the banks, and and you know the banks are the, the originators of this of this product. You know, for safety and soundness, and and they're auditing there, and they're 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 in there all the time. The it's very different from crypto because you know there's also New York. You know, there's state common law, you know, common law fraud claims that that override. You know, that that's that. That applied to this product. Kirshner could have and did also litigate on the basis of, of common law, you know, state common law fraud. And he lost he lost those too. And he lost those too. But but it's not as if they didn't apply. So Correct. those, you know, that that you know, this is not the Wild West. The, you know, the 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 like you know, again, you you look at the the, the custody rules. So even though settlement is not normalized, you know, th there's a process that protects. Um, investors from from being misappropriated. I mean, if, uh, from lend from from investors in advisors from being from being uh, uh, you know fr from 
the, the assets being stolen or or misappropriated. There, there's a very you know there, there there is an infrastructure very different from crypto that's been in existence for decades. Um, the the and it's and I think it's also a very important point. It's not as if there's no regulation in this market. All of the advisors are registered advisors. They are subject to the SEC supervision. The SEC comes in there and audits them every year. Um, with you know, so so we're not talking about the lack of regulations. We're talking about an SEC that is taking the the their mandate on private funds much much further than they're entitled to that's really what this discussion is about mm -hmm. we're not against regulation and and you know if, if you talk to an advisor they're spending tons of money already on compliance and 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 all of the things that they have to do it's just a question of the degree and the types of things that the sec is they're, they're going beyond compliance and they're they're weighing in on the relationship, the contractual relationships between the, you know, the the advisors and their clients. And that's something that they're not entitled to do. And they've never done that before. There's plenty of regulation in the loan market. Yeah. So it's really the the extension into the invest be going beyond the market and getting into the market participants and then yeah. the participants in the market participants and maybe the participants and the participants in the market participants. Yeah. I mean, it's going into, you know, private contractual relationships and it's 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 uh prohibiting certain things and and imposing again outsourcing rule why do you need to go through that you you are an advisor you want to hire a rating agency or an analytical company where does the sec come and tell you how to do your own due diligence which is exactly what the outsourcing rules is, is saying like where where who's complaining about that now where is the problem and you see that over and over. Where is the problem? In the PDA rule, who is complaining about the use of technology? Technology has been incredibly helpful for most investors. And they're now trying to impose rules that make no sense whatsoever. And that would just hold back technology. And how is that a good thing? Those are the things we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Elliot, I think this has been a really interesting discussion. And I appreciate you coming on and I uh, hope you'll come on again next time, maybe after the, the PDA rule goes and that's a proposed rule, right? That's not in final form. Right. That's still in common period. And uh, maybe after we get a court ruling on the, uh, sure. on the final rules that are up right now. Great. Always a pleasure. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Patrick Fitzgerald, and I'm one of Reorg's Distressed Debt Reporters based out of our New York City office. And today we're speaking with Belinda Schwartz, Executive Chair, Chair of Herrick Feinstein and Co-Chair of their Real Estate Department. Herrick is a mid-sized law firm with approximately 140 attorneys headquartered in New York City. Belinda and I will discuss the current happenings in distressed real estate and what lies ahead in the sector. And Belinda has led Herrick's 65-person real estate department since 2014 and is a 30-plus-year veteran of New York City's commercial real estate market. Belinda, welcome, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much, Patrick. I really appreciate your reaching out. Absolutely. Um, to kick things off, you know, we're seeing an increased number of commercial real estate companies, many of them single asset names, file for Chapter 11. Um, 
what are the main drivers of this activity and what sort of properties are the hardest hit? So first of all, it's kind of interesting that we're seeing an uptick in bankruptcy filings for single asset real estate companies. Um, it has long been the narrative that those companies would not file because they typically have what are called non-recourse carve-out guarantees on their debt that requires that if there is a bankruptcy filing by the borrower, um, the debt goes full recourse. And obviously, no one wants to be personally liable on their bank debt. Um, and yet, the market is so distressed that I think we're seeing somewhat of a change in a mindset among different borrowers. And um, it's primarily because, <laughs> I mean, there's so many headwinds, right, Patrick? You and I were talking about the headwinds. Um, look, interest rates have ticked up enormously. Um, values have dropped significantly. It's hard to refinance. And um, many of the markets are um, constrained. I mean, we all know what happened to the office market. Um, now we're seeing it in the multifamily regulated market. And uh, we're even seeing it in, unusually in the high-end residential market, which is unusual um, because those owners are typically pretty you know, capable of holding their assets through um, distressed times, but it's this sort of confluence of circumstances. Okay, interesting. Um, and to follow up on that, how are you? How are you and your colleagues at Herrick seeing changes in the market impact your business and the businesses that you partner with? Well, first of all, our clients are not quite as happy as they were when the market was robust and um, promising. So we are seeing a lot more. Um, clients come to us for advice on how to navigate through these very choppy waters. Um, significantly, they are needing to, many of them are needing to restructure their debt. And that could be whether they're a lender or a borrower. And we are leaning heavily on our colleagues in other departments, whether it's real estate litigation or tax, because there are tax ramifications to different things that you might have to address. And um, so I feel I, I'm lucky in the sense that I have been through quite a couple, quite a few cycles. Um, lucky in the sense that I have the experience, um, but each cycle is different. And uh, I really appreciate the fact that I work with others at the firm who can add their expertise to the mix. Okay. Um, does this kind of market create any unique opportunities for investors? Um, you know, are there any sectors where we are seeing growth at this time? Well, certainly, we're seeing that there is, there are, there are certainly companies with significant capital, um, right? Commonly referred to as dry powder, and um, they are looking for opportunities, and they're seeing it particularly. I would say rescue capital, um, bailing out people who um, need to be bailed out, um, debt, there are a lot of debt funds with debt, you know, capital available to be, uh, to come in. 
uh, it's more expensive. And also particularly in the pref equity space, we're seeing a lot of activity with companies with money coming in and providing preferred equity, but getting, you know, a higher return and better protections in their documents. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, how, how are you and how are your clients seeing work from home impacting their decision making uh, when it comes to current and future investments? So clearly the greatest impact has been on the office market. Um, I assume that's what you're focusing on, Patrick. Correct, uh, yeah. Yeah, so the office market is really challenging right now. And um, no one has a crystal ball. I mean, no one knows what's going to be. You know, I certainly don't know how working from home is going to impact the office market in the long run. But if you look at the statistics and base just what I'm on what I'm reading and hearing, um, it's very challenging. Um, a lot of companies are taking less space. And they're expecting to pay less rent. And uh, whether or not that lasts, uh, I think, you know, history tends to cycle. So I'm sure there will come a day when everyone is back to the office. Um, but I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime. And I, I hope I live for a long, a long time. So I just don't know. Okay. And uh, lastly, you know, we know banks are being very conservative and safe when lending to commercial real estate providers right now. Um, are there any sources of capital that would be willing to get involved in such a distressed industry? You're right, Patrick. It's very challenging to get bank debt. I mean, the banks are highly focused on top tier sponsors where there's a relationship and they're looking at, you know, there are assets that are doing just fine now, continuing to do fine, even in the office market. You do hear about, you know, office buildings that are doing quite well. Um, and then there are sort of, there's this like big divide and there are the assets that are really struggling. And um, I think for the really, really tough assets, not a lot of interest, but in that sort of middle ground, we're seeing um, the debt funds step up Pref equity providers step up and family offices. Family offices in the past used to do mostly direct investing in real estate assets, but they've become quite sophisticated and um, they are comfortable now providing, a lot of them are very comfortable providing debt and being on the debt side. And um, I guess that's a good thing since the banks seem to be really constrained right now. Okay, great. Well, um, you know, that does it for me, but, uh, you know, thanks a ton, Belinda. Really appreciate your time and insights and hope you have a great rest of the week. Thank you so much, Patrick. I hope we can revisit in a few months and see where things are. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. For in-court coverage, we take a look at Yellow Corp, Bed Bath & Beyond, Cytera Technologies, and Genesis Care. 
The Yellow Court debtors moved to designate Estes Express Lines as stocking horse bidder for their real estate assets for $1.53 billion, abandoning a proposed $1.5 billion stocking horse bid from Old Dominion Freight Line, which itself topped Estes earlier in the case. At the uncontested hearing, Judge Craig Goldblatt approved the debtors' bid procedures as well as dip financing and use of cash collateral on a final basis. Debtors' counsel said that hundreds of interested parties have executed NDAs in the sale process, and strategic and financial buyers have expressed significant interest in a debtors' rolling stock. Judge Michael B. Kaplan confirmed Bed Bath & Beyond's liquidating plan, overruling objections to the plan's releases and related gatekeeper provisions from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Trustee. Specifically, the court approved the plan's release of third parties by holders who voted to reject the plan but did not affirmatively opt out. The judge remarked that checking a box to opt out is a minimal task to preserve one's rights. In amended plan documents, Citera said it received multiple bids in its marketing process, but none were qualified bids or more value maximizing the recapitalization transaction contemplated under the earlier version of the plan. As a result, the debtors say they canceled the August 30th auction but may still toggle to a sale transaction if one materializes before the confirmation hearing, which Citera asked the court to set for November 6th. The Genesis Care debtors filed a plan and disclosure statement to implement the sale of their U.S. operations and the reorganization of their rest-of-world assets in line with the strategy announced when the Chapter 11 cases were filed in June. The plan provides for either an equitization restructuring of the U.S. debtors, which would distribute 100% of interest in the U.S. debtors to a plan sponsor, or sale. In a sale scenario, the plan would distribute sale proceeds first to the DIP roll-up claims and then to Class 3 Prepetition Senior Facilities Agreement claims. Wheel Pro's Predium Packaging, Lumen Technologies, Air Methods, and Learfield Communications ran out this week's crop of refinancings and near-term restructurings. Wheel Pro's recent double-dip transaction features an enhanced first-in, last-out that has a higher priority on term priority collateral than a traditional philo, along with common components including non-guarantor restricted subsidiaries and intercompany loan and a security and guarantee package. Unlike a typical FILO, which usually has a second lien, last out, or a third lien on temporary collateral, the new $235 million WheelPros FILO to be incurred by existing loans borrowers, WheelPros Inc., will have a first lien on temporary collateral, pari with non-participating term loans, an intercompany loan, and a new first lien loan. Predium Packaging is considering a liability management transaction with its existing lenders that may include a double dip to recapitalize its capital structure and enhance liquidity. The double dip is one option the company is considering as it evaluates financing options with various parties. In one scenario, the plastic bottle manufacturer could raise $300 million of new money and exchange existing loans for new loans at a discount. Advisors to an ad hoc group of creditors of Lumen Technologies have signed non-disclosure agreements to discuss various options to address $20 billion of debt. The communication services provider has shared some preliminary ideas with the lender's representatives, Davis Polk and Houlihan Loki, sources have said. Creditors remain unrestricted. The debt talks remain at an early stage and a number of outcomes can be expected, including tighter covenants for level 3 debt liability management across the entire capital structure, litigation related to an allegedly amended default or bankruptcy filing. Air Method's 1.4 billion L plus 350 BIPs term loan B due April 2024 dropped to as low as 27 over the past month, compared with the mid-40s in June, according to Solve Advisors, ahead of an interest payment due on the facility at the end of September. A looming rule changed by the Veterans Administration related to a new payment methodology for special modes of transportation is creating considerable concerns for the company and its lenders. The change, which is expected to affect the Air Medical Services Company's future earnings, could lead it to opt to file for bankruptcy. 
Learfield Communications reached 100% support from lenders to enact its restructuring on an out-of-court basis. The college sports media rights company was able to work out deal terms with holders of the debt over the past few weeks ahead of its revolver maturity on September 30th. Under the transaction, existing debt would be exchanged at 55 cents on the dollar, resulting in a new $500 million loan due 2028, with the remaining 45% of existing debt equitized. The resulting leverage would be about 4x to 5x. Top red stories this week included 3M CAE MDL court says $6.1 billion settlement fair, smart, urges claimants to participate. Staples lenders organized with Gibson Dunn to evaluate options for $6 billion in debt. High yield primary market bounces back with three deals pricing for a total of $815 million. Cineo's health LBO's financing package hits market. HHS CMS accused Chamber of Commons of policymaking by litigation, urged court to dismiss suit against Medicare drug price negotiation for lack of standing ripeness. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events can be found on the Lear website and America's Week Ahead. Here are a few highlights. On Monday, the Genesis Global Debtors defend their proposed settlement with the FTX Group Debtors, which will resolve several claim disputes pending in both Chapter 11 cases. The settlement is opposed by the ad hoc lender group, Gemini Trust Co., and the Fair Group. The objectors argue that the settlement overvalues FTX's claims and is an attempt to manipulate the planned voting process. The block by debtors will be in court several times this week, but arguably the most important appearance will be on Wednesday. The block by debtors are slated to seek a 54-day extension of their exclusive periods to file and solicit votes on a plan for October 16th and November 23rd, respectively. The debtors say that the extension is necessary to get them through confirmation of the current plan on file, which is up for confirmation on September 26th. BlockFi debtors are also scheduled to defend their motions to estimate the three hours capital and FTX claims against their estates at $0 for distribution purposes and to disallow those claims in their entirety. FTX and the foreign representatives of three hours capital both assert that due process requires additional time to seek discovery and litigate the claims and that reserves for the claims should be established pending the planned confirmation process. On Friday, the yellow corp debtors are seeking to designate Estes Express Lines as the stocking horse bidder for their real estate assets with a $1.525 billion bid. Estes was going to be the stocking horse initially, but was replaced by Old Dominion in connection with the dip facility provided by Citadel and MFN partners. However, the debtors say that they renegotiated with Old Dominion and Estes after interim approval of the dip financing and that Estes came through with better terms. The Estes bid includes a maximum breakup fee of $9.1 million, a huge reduction from the $28 million fee contemplated under Old Dominion's $1.5 billion bid. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.